It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, episode 38, Help of Those Kids. Well, I'm Noah Diamond, and as I look out over your eager faces, I can readily understand why this podcast is flat on its back. Those faces belong to my handsome co-hosts. Let's say hello first to the one, the only, Bob Gassell. Well, you said handsome. I didn't know, I didn't know you were referring to me, so <laughs> I'm not prepared. Handsome, meaning uh, horse-drawn. Are you saying my face was drawn by a horse? What? <laughs> He's a looker, folks. He's being modest. And the sole and singular Matthew Conium. And they don't come any more horse-drawn than me. Well, uh, this is our back-to-school special, and it's all about the kids. So let me say this. Very few of us were part of the Marx Brothers' original audience. If you're younger than 90, you experienced the films as products of an earlier time. We all had to discover them, and that was part of their appeal, wasn't it? We had to stumble upon them or be exposed to them by someone who knew. I I was born the year Groucho Marx died. It doesn't completely make sense that the work he and his brothers did when my grandparents were kids should be so important to me. Uh, But on the other hand, here we are. Here we all are. And why not? So for these reasons and others, uh, it's always thrilling to me to see the often ecstatic and sometimes life-altering effect that the Marx Brothers can still have on young people if they discover them or if we help. Personally, some of my best Marxian experiences have had to do with kids. And I love seeing in the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group when people post about showing the films to their kids or, you know, my six-year-old wants to be Harpo for Halloween. Uh, It warms the heart. Okay, you know, if there are six-year-olds who want to be Harpo for Halloween, Maybe humanity will be all right. Today, we have a guest on the show who has devoted part of her professional life to sharing the Marx Brothers with young people under extraordinary circumstances. But before we introduce you to her, uh, let's talk about childhood. It's an important ingredient here, isn't it? The Marx Brothers, of course, began their career as child performers and ever after into adulthood, their characters retained childlike qualities. And many of us, including all three of your hosts on this podcast, have been fans of the brothers since we were kids. And although we covered some of this in our early episodes, uh, that was three years ago. And kids these days, they don't remember our first episodes, you know, (laughs) we we really ought to colorize them. So, Bob, for the record, how old were you when you first discovered the Marx Brothers, and how intense and immediate was their impact on you? Okay, I think I think my story is going to reflect that of a lot of people of my generation, growing up in the '60s and '70s. Um, my first exposure to what is now known as classic comedy, you know, was as a little kid with the daily showings of uh, the Three Stooges on TV, and and also the Warner Brothers cartoons, which I had no idea came from basically the same era. And there was also this great show, Fractured Flickers, which took old-time silent clips and put them with new narration and funny music. It was done by the same people who did Rocky and Bullwinkle. If you haven't seen it, uh, check it out on YouTube. It's really great. Uh, but I think I first encountered the Marxes at age 10. It was a Paramount. I can't recall which one. I'm thinking Coconuts or Horse Feathers. Uh, 
But like, you know, most kids, I was first pulled in by Harpo's antics. The whole idea of a silent comedian in a sound film was just so original. I think I was just obsessed with the team right off the bat. I had to see everything and know everything. And I gradually started getting in the crowd show as I began to understand the jokes. And even when I didn't get them, I loved his delivery and his whole, you know, demeanor. Um, Chico, it took a bit longer. I don't think it was until a couple of years later when I had a friend who was a huge Chico fan that I really began to appreciate him. Uh, Zeppo, I know. I'm still waiting for him to kick in. <laughs> <laughs> and Matthew, uh, most of us know that the classic tale of the brothers coming to you on the BBC Two at Christmas time in 1983 when you were 10, which makes you, let's see, 39 years old, I think. Um, <laughs> I wonder if there's anything about those early impressions of the brothers um, that have changed for you over the years in some way. Not that have changed, no. I mean, it was just... Um I, I knew from the, the, the moment I saw them, which was somewhere in the middle of monkey business, I missed the start, um, that there was just something different about them of a sort that I liked and of a sort that I dimly recognized. I loved all, all comedians. I'd already seen Chaplin by then. I'd already seen Laurel and Hardy uh, because we only had four channels, which meant that you tended to stick around. You didn't channel hop. So you discovered stuff, uh, which was an, you know, an, an invaluable lost a sort of lost dimension in, in television. Um, so I, I knew my way around comedians, but there was just certain comedians and certain types of comedy that I didn't see very often that I, I just placed on a, I mean, it's not even fair to say a higher rung, really just a different rung. Um, the, the very, very clever, joyously absurd stuff, which I'd glimpsed in uh, Spike Milligan and Kenny Everett. I don't know if you, if he traveled. I didn't make a date to see the film, although I was, fairly intrigued by the trailers they'd been running all Christmas. I did stumble upon it, but I did stick around, and uh, it was specifically the the joke about uh, a, a diamond, uh, diamond earring has been stolen, and it looks like this. In fact, this is it. That, that was the moment when I realised that this was something that I would be spending the rest of my life with. And uh, it occurs to me that uh, both of you guys have a specific link to the younger generation, that I don't, in that you are both fathers. And I wonder, uh, do your kids like the Marx Brothers? How's that going? Not yet. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of saving them for the, the exact right possible moment. I've been, I've been testing the waters with other, other comedians. He, he does like the Three Stooges. He does like, uh, Abbott and Costello. He does like Chaplin, uh, although he used to call him John for some reason. He always said, can I watch John? <laughs> No idea why, but that, that's Chaplin. Um, so he's, he, he gets, he likes old comedy. He likes black and white stuff. So, um, I'm, I'm just waiting for the exact right moment to, to launch them on him. Yeah. I have two teenagers and the best way to get them to watch anything that I want them to see is to basically ignore them. Don't suggest it. Just have it on. You know, as they're crossing the room and sometimes they'll turn around and stop and go, Hey, what's this? And actually that worked with the Marxes, uh, at least for my daughter. Over the years, I've had Marx films on and she'll come by and sit down and watch with me and enjoy them. She's loved duck soup. Uh, she particularly liked uh, a night in Casablanca as I was watching it a couple of months ago uh, to get ready for the podcast. Um, uh, 
our teenage son, uh, not so much. Not that he doesn't like them. He's just never given them a chance. Uh, to him, uh, the history of movies goes back to Back to the Future. That, that's <laughs> where the movie started for him. I should have said, yeah, I didn't say how old my, my son is. He's eight. So I, I guess I'm kind, I'm kind of waiting for him to be 10. That does seem to be something of a, maybe the, the age when you're ripe for it, right? You both discovered the Marx Brothers at 10. Um, I, mm. I think I was 12 when I saw their films, but I was aware of them earlier than that. That seems to be about right. Maybe it's, um, the right level of verbal sophistication to appreciate much of the humor but still in a mischievous childhood mode that would be receptive to the Marx Brothers. Um, and uh, before we turn to our interview with this teacher, uh, what about school? School is part of this story. The Marx Brothers um, early on discovered the comic possibilities of a classroom setting, reprised notably in Horse Feathers. I wonder if if you guys liked school when you were kids and if getting to know the Marx Brothers had any influence on your classroom or playground behavior. Actually, I think I had a proclivity towards Marx's humor even before I knew who they were. Um, there's a report card of mine from, I think, first or second grade in which the teacher says, oh, he's a good student and everything, but sometimes he stirs the uh, class up with his remarks. So I think I had a, you know, a little groucho in me e even back then. Yeah, I I didn't go much on school to be honest. Um not that I was a, a particularly uh troublesome pupil, but it, it was it wasn't somewhere where I wanted to be. Um I'm sure I think I've told already the story of my history teacher seeing a copy of Harpo Speaks on my desk and and saying, "Ah, that explains a lot." Which is which is quite nice, um, but yeah, I mean the usual thing that that, that everyone will tell you of you know try, trying to be as as uh, as quick and as witty as as Groucho at every opportunity and and failing almost every time because I didn't have George S. Kaufman and Murray Riskin in my pocket. <laughs> oh, and I wanted to interject something here uh, quickly, Noah. You were mentioning earlier about the fact that we weren't around when uh, these films uh, first came out. Well. I just lost a relative. Well, uh, it was my mom's uh, second husband. He just passed away a couple weeks ago. He was 106 years old, 106. And, you know, I was thinking, oh, he was around to see the Marx films when they originally came out. I never really talked to him about it, but uh, he was around. I'm sure he saw a couple. But I was also thinking he is old enough where he could have been there in the audience during that one showing of Humor Risk in 1921. He would have been six years old. He could have been one of those guys throwing popcorn and you know, dooming this film to a early grave. So there goes another link to the past. My grandmother, my, my maternal grandmother, who's a big um, influence on me and has a lot to do with my feelings about New York and humor and a lot of things that intersect with the Marx Brothers. Uh, she would be 100 years old this year if she were still with us. And... I remember that when I first started working on I'll Say She Is, I thought uh, my grandmother, Grandma Red is what we called her, would be a great resource. She was in New York in the 20s, and um, I can get some firsthand stuff from her. Uh, I started doing the math. Uh, she was three years old when I'll Say She Is was on Broadway. So it's a it's 
it's uh, commensurate with my ability to talk about popular culture from when I was three. Yeah. It's a long time ago now that these guys made those films and shows. Yeah. yeah, I was trying to think, was there anybody around still who had sex with one of the, the brothers? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> that we should we might be able to answer that, couldn't we? Any any Zeppo exes uh, still with us? Oh, yeah, that that woman um who who's come up recently, his his last partner. She's she's around, isn't she? So the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the top questions we get. Eddie Deason wanted to know. <laughs> With that, let's meet our guest, California-based educator, cinephile, and Marx Brothers fan, Hannah Mira. Welcome aboard, Hannah. This is just too, too devastating. Uh, we've been very <laughs> eager to talk with you, Hannah, after your email to us about your experiences showing the Marx Brothers films in a classic cinema class in a juvenile correctional facility. But first, to get the ball rolling, we want to ask you the same questions we ask everyone, which is, what is your Marx Brothers origin story? How did you first encounter their work and uh, what have they meant to you over the years? So, I, like a lot of your guests, I think... From what I've, you know, heard, there is definitely a strong correlation between the Marx Brothers and my dad. My dad was the old comedy buff in our family. He showed me the Marx Brothers. He showed me W.C. Fields. He showed me Stan and Ollie. He showed me the Three Stooges too. That didn't really stick for me as much. Um, but I was a great fan of their stuff growing up. And, and I got this kind of ridiculous classical education that a lot of my peers didn't have. And it's interesting when you kind of go into school as a kid and you're making all of these like references to like, you know, you can't cheat an honest man and it's a gift. And your peers are like, you know, giving you the poker face there. So um, I got a really oh, cool, yes. yeah, I'm sure you guys know, yeah, very, very well from that. Yes. Um, this is actually a support group for kids like that. Oh, thank God. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I needed you guys when I was like nine years old and I was in school and the teacher's like, anyone have any questions? And I'm like, yes, when are you going to cut the watermelon open? And I'm getting sent to the, to the principal's office for insubordination. I'm like, I'm sorry. I was trying to be funny. Um, so my dad gave me that really cool education in comedy classics. And my mom kind of was on the other end of the classic spectrum where she was showing me the Doris Days and the Gene Kelly and the Fred Astaire's and stuff like that. So I got this really cool baseline of classic cinema and my appreciation for them and my understanding of them changed over the years like when I first saw them I was always like can we get through like the romance part even the music like I didn't want that I wanted to get to those funny bits I wanted to get to the Harpo antics and the you know the Groucho and Chico scenes um but now as I you know watch them over and over and over again as I've watched them with my students and unpacked them and analyzed them and even shown them to my son I now love the musical moments and I now love those, you know, kind of sometimes ludicrous romantic storylines that they insert in there because it gives you a break from the sometimes frenetic pacing of the Marx Brothers. So that's, you know, in a nutshell, how I came to first experience them and how my understanding and love of them has kind of evolved over the years. And now I don't want to ask you a what's your favorite question, but what are your, your few favorite of the Marx Brothers films and, or, or specific moments or scenes? And is there a particular one of the brothers who you've identified with over the years? Yes. So when I was younger, it was definitely Night at the Opera. That was my favorite. 
my mom took me to see El Travator when I was like five and I was sitting there waiting for the antics, just waiting for it to happen. <laughs> and when the curtain came down, I'm like, the hell? Like that was a lot, you know, there's no, there's no battleships or, you know, so like, no, take me out to the ball game. No, nothing, you know, and I, I was kind of expecting that sort of experience. I still love opera though. Um, so when I was younger, it was definitely, um, night at the opera. Now I have to say in terms of the amount of the percentage of the film where I look at and I go, this is top marks quality. It's probably animal crackers at this point in my life. I'd have to say, um, I showed it to my husband for the first time the other day and he, he'd never seen seen animal crackers and it's so cool to watch it with someone for the first time and we were watching it and I kept saying like oh this is the best part no this is the best part this is the you know and he's like how many best parts are there and I'm like there's actually quite a few best parts in this one so as of right now I would say um animal crackers has to be my favorite in terms of my favorite line it actually comes from coconuts and my favorite line for me is um, get away from that tree before it dies. I'm still looking for a point in my life when I can use that, just throw it into a conversation. It hasn't happened yet. Maybe I should hang out at more auctions. I don't know, but I, I love that line and I haven't gotten to use it yet. In terms of a favorite character, when I was younger, it was Groucho because he was the biggest. He was the most loud and vocal. And I think now for me, it's actually Harpo. And the change for me happened when I was telling Bob a little earlier, I have a special needs son who was born with an extremely rare speech disorder called verbal apraxia. In the UK, they call it verbal dyspraxia. And essentially there's a disconnect between what his brain tells him to say and what comes out of his mouth. So verbal communication isn't easy for him. And so he has to rely on a lot of physical gestures to get his needs met. And so having that experience with my son gave me an even more, you know, renowned, a deeper appreciation uh, for Harpo and how he was able to create this persona, create these narratives, create these interactions non-verbally. Wow. That is really quite something. And as you point out, the story of um, getting turned on to the Marx Brothers mm -hmm. by way of our parents, mm -hmm. and it does seem like more often than not, it is our fathers. Um, it, not only is that does that give a great deal of personal significance to these films, but it also instills a desire to pass it along to younger people. Yeah. It does. My son, I was one of those moms, you know, how when like you do your best parenting before you're a parent and you're like, I'm never going to do this with my kid. I'm never going to do this. And then my son was six months old and he had strep throat. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. He is miserable. I'm going to show him TV, I guess. Like, I don't know what else to do, but I was kind of selfish. And I'm like, I don't want to put on a cartoon because that's obnoxious. So if you're going to watch something, you're going to watch an old movie, you know? And he fell in love with the Marx Brothers. I don't know if it was because it was black and white and his eyes just like that contrast or what it was, but I've just got so many videos of him just like gobsmacked, mouth open at like six months old, just watching Groucho. Do you remember the first moments where you said, ah, he, he's liking this? The first film was Night at the Opera. Um, and uh, I can send you guys, I'll email you some video um, of the stateroom scene. He's just watching the people pile in and his brain's trying to like figure out what's going on. Why are all of these people going in to the room? And the expression, he's just, he's trying to figure it out, trying to make sense to him. And even to this day, we do a lot of speech drills at our house with little cards. If, mm -hmm. if there's a word that's hard for him to say, he'll pull a Harpo and animal crackers and he'll just throw the card across the room. Like we're not, we're not using that <laughs> one anymore. So he's picked up a lot more Marxianisms than I think I even understand. <laughs> 
I've always been uh, gotten a little prickly when people say, and it's an oft expressed opinion, that, you know, young people don't care about classic films or, you know, you can't show a black and white movie to anybody who was born after 1960 or something. Because like you, I've found it to be demonstrably untrue. And I also think I'm reacting against a, a mildly traumatic moment when I was 12 years old and said something about Jimmy Durante. And an adult told me, you don't know who the hell Jimmy Durante is. So I had to impersonate oh. him uh, then and there. No, when, when I was in school, I, I would make like, you know, Bob and Bing and road references. And again... I'm like, I'm going to school with a bunch of morons. Like, no one is understanding <laughs> these points I'm making. Yet we also have to under be easy on kids because, yeah. you know, somebody who's a child today who just happens not to have become acquainted with mm -hmm. a group of films from the 1930s, like, why would they? Why would they encounter them unless we do what you have spent a great deal of your career doing, which is exposing young people to this stuff? Mm -hmm. um, so how did the teaching career emerge and how did using the Marx Brothers in a juvenile prison start? It, it kind of started how Penny's playwriting career started and you can't take it with you where the typewriter was delivered by mistake to her front door. And as Jimmy Stewart, <laughs> as Jimmy Stewart's character said, if it had been a plow, she would have taken up farming. Um, it sort of fell into my lap. I was going to university, getting my degree in English. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. And my mom was doing um, some volunteer work in a juvenile prison by our home. And I had done some tutoring work uh, prior. And she was like, hey, would you mind coming in and doing some tutoring with one of these boys in here? He's facing a life sentence. He doesn't really know how to read very well. And prison is unimaginably difficult if you can't even read a book to distract yourself. So I started to go in there as a volunteer and I began to teach this boy how to read. He was 16 or 17. And a light bulb went on for me and I was like, I want to teach and I want to teach kids that are incarcerated. So I went to graduate school. I got my teaching credential and this was uh, down in Southern California. And I began to throw out fish hooks for a job and there was nothing in my area, but a job popped up at a juvenile detention facility in Northern California. So I applied, I got the job. Um, I went up there. I did not know at all what I was stepping into because you get zero training in what's called alternative education in graduate school. They just don't, don't cover that. So I was stepping into a classroom where literally the teacher that I was filling in for, I was replacing had died two weeks before in the classroom in front of the students. I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. So I was stepping into children that had a whole other layer of PTSD going on because they had just seen their teacher died. And she was, she was a few years older than me when she died. So that was also a lot of fun, you know, learning that they're like, oh, she died of a stress induced brain aneurysm. Welcome to your new career. Like, wow. That's like a night in Casablanca. Groucho yeah. gets to, to be the uh, manager of the hotel after all the previous managers uh, depart the earth. I actually just watched that for the first time last week. I'd never, my dad always told me, stop after um, day at the races and at the opera, don't, don't, don't go forward. And I heeded his warning and I tried Casablanca the other day and I'm glad that I did, but I don't know that I'll be revisiting that one a great deal. Um, anyways, so I um, took the job as the English teacher and I loved it. Working in a juvenile detention facility is very interesting because you get a different roster of students every day because kids get arrested every day. So you never have the same roster of students two days in a row. Kids are constantly coming in and being released. So there's this, you know, kind of conveyor belt feeling. 
Um, the facility that I was in, the kids were not broken up by age or grade level. They were broken up by gang affiliation. So depending on whatever loyalty they had, that's where they were grouped. And so it wasn't uncommon to have a 12 year old with an 18 year old, which makes scaffolding curriculum quite challenging. We got a new principal my second year there and she wanted to kind of shake things up a bit. And she's like, I'm going to give each of you a 90 minute elective block at the end of the day. And you can do whatever you want to do with that elective block. And I was like, how can I get paid to watch old movies? And so I spent a couple weekends writing up this entire like 300 page block of curriculum where I took about 60 movies um, from the golden era, broke them down in terms of thematic elements and narrative arc and vocabulary and just created a curriculum out of them. And then we broke those up into multiple week units based on whoever was starring. So we would do our Catherine Hepburn unit, our Cagney unit, our Marx Brothers unit. And um, I implemented that and it became one of my most profoundly touching and moving experiences, seeing all of these kids elevated out of their surroundings temporarily through the beauty of, of old film. And would you say that the Marx Brothers got a particularly noteworthy reaction from your students? They absolutely did. It was a learning curve at first for them. I started them off with Night at the Opera. I found that's kind of a good, you know, sticking your toe in the water. And we always ended at Coconuts because that one was a little, you know, a little more difficult for a number of reasons that you guys have touched on in, in previous podcasts. So we would start with Night at the Opera. And I taught this unit multiple times over the years, right? And Groucho, for some reason, I always found him to be a little off-putting for my kids. I could actually see them kind of leaning back in their chairs when he would start going. And I wasn't sure if it was like them trying to process everything that he was throwing at them because he doesn't make a lot of archaic references um, or what it was but they, their body language would go back from him, but it would always go forward with Harpo, especially. They couldn't take their eyes off Harpo. They thought he was the most hilarious thing they'd ever seen. And the musical numbers was when they were the most rapt of all. Whenever Chico would play or Chico would play or Harpo would play, they were just gobsmacked. They were just glued to the screen. And it was so, so cool. And it was even funnier because some of them would actually take uh, Groucho-isms back to their cell blocks and get in trouble for using them uh, in different <laughs> circumstances. So so he, he definitely made an impression, but I think for them, Groucho was the hardest to digest at first. Did you get any sense at all that they might have looked at these films and thought, here is here is a way of being uh, anti-establishment or, or in, in some way kicking against the system that's a, a different way and, you know, a, a better way. Yeah, I absolutely think that they got the understanding that this was a bit of a counterculture uh, type statement, right? These, these, these guys were doing something that no one had done before because we had talked a lot and about, you know, the, the norms in Hollywood and the norms in society in the 1930s. And we had looked at other movies from the 1930s and they knew that what these guys were doing were very different. They absolutely did. And are there any specific uh, jokes or sequences that went over particularly big where the laughter is still with you uh, from the class? Um, yes. The stateroom scene in Night at the Opera was always a big hit um, for them. The animal crackers scene where they're gathered around the piano, you know, and, Ch and Chico's doing his, you know, his v variety of songs um, was always a big hit. Monkey business, they loved just because of the gangster element. They really sort of found that quite charming. They also, you know, it helps to oogle Thelma Todd. You know, that doesn't hurt anyone. Day at the races, they liked as well when they were, you know, fighting against, you know, 
the establishment, any kind of movement against the establishment, as Matthew was pointing out, they really liked that because a lot of these kids saw themselves as rightly so fighting a system, right? My students were 99% lower socioeconomic, 80 plus percent minority. These children came from not the best circumstances. And so they often saw them against the system. And to see that kind of reflected in film, you know, the Marx Brothers against the system was kind of refreshing for them. Now, in addition to liking the films, were they ever at the point where they said, we want to learn more about the brothers and who they were and their story? Yeah, no, absolutely. They they wanted to know, you know, kind of the basic classic questions of, you know, is Harpo actually mute? Like, can he, can he not actually talk? You know, why does one brother sound Italian and the rest of them don't sound Italian? You know, why does Groucho have that mustache? What did they do afterwards? Were they rich? Were they married? You know, yeah, they had a lot of questions about the personalities off screen. Absolutely. And what's the deal with Zeppo, right? Yeah. No one ever mentioned him, which I think kind of says it all. <laughs> no, no one had any questions for Zeppo. Poor Zeppo. Interestingly, Zeppo's the one who came very close to being in a juvenile correctional facility himself uh, in his yep, younger days. He did. Uh, I guess that says that who you are doesn't necessarily uh, come across when you're not given any lines. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, it was, um, it, it was a very, very unique experience. Cause like before I started the class, I pulled the kids and I'm like, who here has seen an old movie? And they're like, well, I saw the first fast and furious movie. And I'm like, no, I, I'm talking I'm like, <laughs> you, you know, black and white movie. And one kid was, one kid had seen a black and white movie and the other kid goes, you idiot. That was a security camera. So he had, <laughs> he had an actual right. scene, a black and white movie. Um, so, so there wasn't a lot of that exposure. I did have one kid actually who he came in for a bit, got released, came back, which wasn't unusual for my kids. But he said, Hey, you remember that movie we watched about the Nazis, Casablanca? He goes, yeah. He goes, when I got out, he's like, I saw my dad for the first time in a long time. And my dad said that was his favorite movie. And we watched it again together. And he was really surprised that I had seen it. So he goes, we were able to talk about it. So that's one of the cool things I think about classic cinema in general is that it creates a bridge. Absolutely right. And a movie like Casablanca, I mean, how would you compare your students' response to the Marx Brothers with their response to other classic films or to your curriculum in general? So I was always pushing the boundaries with them. I'm like, Doris Day, there's no way they're going to like a Doris Day movie. They love Doris Day. They thought she was the perfect woman. They all wanted to marry her. Like I was, you know, I showed them you know, Catherine Hepburn, and, and she's not everyone's cup of tea, right? And it was to the point where they were requesting bringing up baby on a weekly basis. You know, I showed them wow. My Fair Lady, and they wanted me to replay with a little bit of luck over and over until they memorized the lyrics and can sing along with it. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, huge hit, Singing in the Rain. I remember actually watching that with them while it was raining the week before Christmas break, which is always a hard time in jail. I brought in a bouche, my family's French, a bouche de Noel, and we just ate bouche and watched Singing in the Rain in the rain. And there was such an amazing connection between the children and the films, one that I could never, ever have anticipated. Watching Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and watching my kids cry because they remembered what it was like to grow up around alcoholism. Um, mm-hmm. You know, watching The Odd Couple and the kids love The Odd Couple so much, we had to do it as a play. So we performed Odd Couple. I started the, wow. I start, I started the uh, dramatic arts program there as well, too. So the kids were just wildly, wildly receptive to things that no one thought they would ever be 
receptive to. I mean, like I'm trying to, I'm actually racking my brains trying to think of a film that didn't go over well. I can't at the moment think of one where there wasn't least a few kids that were like, that was funny or that was good. Or I learned something from that. It was, it was truly incredible. What were the, like the age breakdowns and the sex breakdowns of, of, of the children? Yeah, so uh, girls were always in one class by themselves. I didn't have them for classic film. It was only our homeroom that we saw at the end of the day. So every teacher, there was one English, one math, one history, one science, one PE. And we each had a group of kids for homeroom, and then that would be our elective group. My group was the long-term older boys unit. So I had the 16 to 18-year-olds that were all looking at extremely long sentences. Many of my boys were looking at going to jail or prison once they turned 18. So they were in it for long haul. That was, that was the population that I worked with. And like I said, about 80 to 85% of my students were uh, Latino, Hispanic, or African-American. And the rest of the population was Polynesian. Did you find with any of them that at the end of the course, there was any indication that this might, as, as well as something that, that, that they'd really enjoyed yeah. uh, in, the, in that situation, something that they might actually be taking away with them and, and would possibly represent some sort of avenue of, you know, of interest uh, in, in their outside life. Absolutely. I had a couple kids that said that they wanted to try and find theaters that were open to try and do community theater when they got out. You could have knocked me over with a feather, you know, I'm getting a visual of Harpo, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I was so, you know, I was, I was, I was gobsmacked by that. And um, I had a few kids who told me that they had written uh, letters home and told their friends and family, I watched this movie. I really liked it. You should like it too. One of the boys developed a deep, deep obsession with Cagney. Um, he was asking his mom to send him books that he could read about Cagney. It, it became a thing in our class where whenever they, they would walk in for film class, we would always start the class with, what do you hear? What do you say? That was our little go-to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the kids definitely carried a lot of stuff away with them, probably more than I even heard or understand, but they, they definitely carried a lot away, you know, from, from the viewings with them. I remember watching them line up to go back to their cell block and they were all singing bless their beautiful hide from seven brides for seven brothers. <laughs> it's in line on the way to go back, you know, and film has the ability to lift us out of circumstance. And I think that's, never been more true than for children that can't escape their circumstances. So even after you ran out of films, you wouldn't show them anything beyond the day at the races. Like that was verboten. <laughs> that was the end of the Marx Brothers unit. Anything else that that was their own liability. They could, they could check that out <laughs> themselves. Yeah, I know. I wanted to, I wanted to preserve, you know, that, that, that capsule. Okay. Yeah. I'm debating whether to make a joke about having to be incarcerated to see Go West again. But uh, <laughs> I'll pass on that. That, that would have definitely been a, a deterrent, I think, for some of the kids. <laughs> would have lowered the recidivism rate. <laughs> Do you think this program could be replicated? I mean, is it something that could be used in yeah. other facilities to 100%. help or even just entertain uh, kids who need it? Yeah, and I... I had kind of envisioned that for a while. Like the way that I'd written up the curriculum, all a teacher needed was a television and a DVD player and this paper. That's really all you need, right? And obviously 
teacher has to have somewhat of a working knowledge of whatever it is they're going to show. But this was back when you could, you know, the DVDs on Netflix. So you can just have a Netflix account, get your school to pay for it. And mm. you can literally start a classic film program. And it doesn't even have to be classic, write your own. If you want to do a film noir unit, or if you want to look at the sixties and counterculture in cinema, like there's so many ways to go with this. I chose the golden era because that's my, my, background and that's my favorite but it's absolutely a very replicable and dirt cheap elective program a girlfriend of mine who's a teacher up in san francisco she actually uh did it as well she took my curriculum and she did it with her eighth grade students and they loved it there's really something about i don't want to make light of or romanticize the lives that these children were leading in incarceration because obviously it's a very serious situation um but i also feel that uh, the Marx Brothers themselves probably would have appreciated that their work would appeal to children who were in trouble. Um, so often the Marx Brothers themselves are more or less playing the roles of kids who are in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason why my boys resonated with them, because they again saw the Marxes as people that were just trying to live their lives, however outside of the box that may be, and they were always being pressed upon by these forces, whether it's opera directors or, you know, cops or detectives or whoever it may be. They're always being sort of pushed. I should imagine in that case then that they would have been particularly interested to find out about their their childhood in, in turn of the century New York and the the uh, the very rough and tumble and, and often uh, you know brushing against criminal uh, aspects of all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked very briefly. I wish now I'd gone more in depth. We talked very briefly about the brothers beginning and how they obviously didn't come from the lap of luxury. No one had a silver spoon. It was all, it was all grit, sweat, and determination that we talked about also coming from hard scrabble circumstances and finding a, a catalyst for creativity and self-expression the way the brothers did. And they found a way to not only, you know, become icons, but they managed to find a way to take care of themselves financially to become quite successful and to do something that they really loved. So that was a good a discussion point for the boys. And we, we did talk a lot about how do we take whatever we were given in life and make something better out of it? Uh, well, in addition to all this, Hannah, you mentioned in your initial email to us uh, some experiences wherein you crossed paths with some of the paintings of Harpo Marx. Uh, will you tell us about that? Absolutely. So about a decade or so ago, I was dating a delightful fellow, and I went to his uh, mom's house to meet her. And he was in the kitchen getting his drinks, and I was just walking around looking at the art on the wall, and I saw a painting that had a vaguely, I would say, impressionist slash post-impressionist kind of vibe to it, and slightly rudimentary, and I assumed that it was a childhood painting of my then beau. And I was like, oh, did you paint this? And he goes, uh, no, that's, that's actually a Harpo. And I had a, you know, what is this now? You know, sort of thing. And I'm like, this is a Harpo. And he goes, yeah. He goes, my mom is friends with Miriam. And I was like, I, I, I didn't know what to say, you know? So I'm like studying the painting. I'm trying to probe him for questions. And he was like, not interested. He'd never seen a Marx Brothers movie. He was just like, yeah, you know, she gave it to my mom and my mom has it on the wall. And he didn't have really like a backstory or much else to go on from that. And I was just, I thought that was an amazing experience. And then, um, when I had reached out to you guys, I had mentioned, you know, that as well. And then I believe I also sent you um, a, 
uh, a copy of the picture that sadly she's keeping in a storage unit right now for some reason. I don't know why, but it's, it's, it's hidden away from the public right now. This, this particular Harpo painting that she has, I hope one day she takes it back out and puts it on the wall again, because it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite fun. She could have a big unveiling and then it could get stolen. <laughs> a theme party. I love it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> no trains will be sold till the magazines leave the depot. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so she still has it. I'm not sure what's going to happen to it because she is elderly. I'm not sure what's going to ha- happen to it after she passes. If uh, my ex is going to get it or his sister, his sister is actually an artist. Um, I'm not sure what the future of the painting holds, but as of right now, it's, it's sitting in storage somewhere in Southern California. Whenever I see a painting of Harpo's, I always wonder if somebody told me, you know, showed me the painting with no signature mm-hmm. and said, this was painted by a classic film comedian, or even this is painted by one of the Marx Brothers. How, how likely would I be to guess that it was Harpo? Is there anything in these paintings that we recognize as fundamental to Harpo? Nothing that I've been able to detect. I actually, I take art classes on Saturdays and I showed the photo to my art teacher yesterday. I covered up the name and I said, can you guess who painted this? And she goes, well, she goes, it looks kind of Gauganish. And I was like, nope. And I moved my hand and she, she actually didn't know who Harpo was, but so she wouldn't have guessed him anyways. But no, that was her you know, guesstimate as to who actually painted that painting. So I don't see anything, but I I don't know what I would even look for if I'm looking for something reminiscent of Harpo. Like would I look for a little cane or a little, like, I don't even know what I would look, look for in the painting, you know? I think there is a certain naivety and sweetness to them. I don't know if that's just because we know that they're Harpos, but they seem to come out of that side of his personality, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they seem kind of gentle and like the one that yeah. I, sh- I showed you guys, which is kind of a, a landscape from an odd angle. There's, yeah, there's a, there's a gentleness and a stillness in it that you only kind of see when Harpo sits down to play the harp, when he's not being frantic Harpo, when he's being peaceful Harpo. And I think that's kind of part of the magic of the paintings. Yeah, that's a good observation. They they seem to come perhaps more from the Arthur Marx who played the harp than from the Harpo who had a sleeve full of silverware. Exactly, exactly. And I think like you guys have touched on so much, there's sort of a disconnect between our understanding of the brothers as performers and our understanding of the brothers as people. Yeah, they themselves tended to make that distinction a little blurry, certainly from our contemporary angle. Well, yeah, I mean, Harpo signed his paintings, Harpo. I think the one painting of his that I have seen um, an image of that did have a little trace of Marxian humor in it is the one that's a, a painting of a naked woman reclining. And at the bottom, it says self-portrait by Harpo Marx. <laughs> <laughs> Shades of, uh, what was that one? Horse feathers, just bringing around wherever he went and hanging the naked right. woman up. Yeah. Noah just happened to mention there uh, the uh, cutlery falling out of the of the coat. Um, I'm just wondering how, how that moment went down in your classes. That one definitely, uh, definitely inspired a lot of laughs. Um, a lot of my students had, you know, records of theft. So seeing anyone bungle a theft um, w- <laughs> was quite humorous to them. But I reminded them, I'm like, none of you are good criminals. Look where you are at currently. So none of you have cut this down. So, uh, no, they, they, they loved all of the kind of silly, vaguely criminal antics, but there was definitely sort of a disconnect between the kind of fantasy realm of the Marxians, of the Marx's ability to commit these, what are essentially crimes and have no repercussions. The boys would be like, wait, isn't that illegal what they just did? Like that sometimes that suspended disbelief 
was a little tricky mm-hmm. for them. I remember um, I was watching Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. One of the boys afterwards said, I kidnapped someone. I didn't get a wife out of it. So there was this like mm-hmm. lack of understanding, like what they are doing is, is for a film. It's not, there's not actually someone waiting to, to persecute them. Well, that's interesting. That's also kind of a commentary on the way everything has changed since classic films were made. Mm-hmm. And and not only are some of these films great or worthwhile works of art, but they are also kind of windows into previous eras in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, when young people or nowadays even old people watch, you know, older films, that is a constant, that's always present in your thoughts, isn't it? Like, well, that's that's not really how courtship works anymore, for example. Exactly. Or like in Horse Feathers, when we see him, you know, in the back room of the speakeasy, you know, pouring from the same jug of alcohol into, you know, was it one quarter scotch, uh-huh. one quarter rye, right? The, the boys are like, wait, what, what is he pouring? Why is he doing it? And we had this talk about prohibition, you know? And so there was all these cool kind of teaching moments that are packed into the films that you can actually unpack really nicely. One thing that I wanted to sort of chat about just from my rewatchings of the films and, you know, in preparation for this podcast was I had neglected to mention and discuss and think about when I was teaching these classes, just what a physical comedian Groucho was. And I, I, I think we can sometimes overlook that. We think that Harpo's the physical comedian. Chico's pretty much the verbal comedian, not a lot of physical humor from him. But Groucho actually kind of straddled the middle there. Like in the beginning of mm-hmm. Animal Crackers, when he's doing that dance, that's a very that's a very physical dance that he's doing. So he kind of straddled, he then diagrammed both of his brothers, which I found kind of interesting upon rewatching. Which I guess is why he sort of became their nominal leader. You know, I mean, he, he does seem, you know, he's always, he's always the one that is able to pull the various threads together and, and it makes sense that he would be the, the fulcrum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. His verbal, um, adroitness and the incredible, memorable sound of his voice regardless of what the material was, was so overwhelming um, that we often have missed the fact that he could have been half as good in that area and still been remembered as a great comedian. And yes, a lot of it is his um, his physical presence. And uh, we've talked a lot in, in previous episodes about some of the just outstanding examples of what he called dancing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you know, he was he was very especially in the early two three films. He was quite he was quite slender. He was quite lithe. He was quite young and bouncy. And then towards the you know Casablanca era, he became a little more weighted down with life, I suppose. But yeah, watching him in you know Coconuts and Animal Crackers and even like Monkey Business, it's like he was very um, he, he he was very nimble. He was very light on his feet. You know, aside from being the master of snide asides, he was also mm-hmm. a very accomplished physical comedian as well, which I think gets lost over the years. We just think of him as the guy that says funny things. Yeah, he was aggressive physically as much as verbally, and it all fit together. Yeah, he was aggressive physically, but I wanted to ask you guys' his opinion. On rewatching the films, I feel like whenever he's required to play anything pseudo-romantic, even those weird moments with Thelma Todd in Monkey Business, he always seems a little uncomfortable and a little tight physically. <laughs> Do you guys feel that way too? Yes. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. And okay. obviously this mirrors his real life where he wasn't known for his warmth. But uh, we should also keep in mind that this grease paint mustache character was never really designed to have any type of sincere emotions or, or feelings. So it wasn't even anything that came naturally to the character, much less the man behind it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Like Harpo obviously is jumping into physical moments with no anticipation of reciprocity. He's like, I'm just going to do this to you physically. And Chico seems very comfortable sidling up to Thelma Todd or whoever, you know, but Groucho always seemed to be just a, a little more like uncomfortable in those pseudo romantic moments, which I, I found quite interesting. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that quite a lot of the things that uh, were part and parcel of Groucho's comedy persona, mm-hmm. which he either felt obliged or or wanted to, uh, to some extent, uh, be identified with himself in a more general sense. In in reality, he did have difficulty with, uh, and that obviously is is a, is a good example. Particularly, I, I think because rivalry is a, is a key part of it with with Chico's, uh, you know famous success you know he he wanted to be thought of as somebody who was uh you know a, a lady killer as well but in actual fact i think um nervousness and also um a, a kind of 19th century chivalry um were very much part of his his real life makeup yeah yeah do any of you guys have a side character that you wish had been in more of the films mm, um chandler Chandler, okay. Uh, Chandler, yeah. <laughs> he was great. Yeah, yeah. I maybe too too easy to say Thelma Todd, but um, you know she had two outings with them and certainly could have had more. She was amazing. I, I'm reading a, a book right now uh, just on her death and just all the complicating factors around it. It, it was quite the uh, quite the ordeal. I would have loved to see more of Kay Francis. I'm obsessed with Kay Francis, mm. and. She, I, you know, she wasn't given anything. She was given such bare bones and coconuts, you know, she was given basically a piece of cardboard as a partner and, but she still man- manages to just be so incredible in her moments. And like that final scene where they're at the dining, the wedding table, and she's having to deal with like Harpo and Chico, like her annoyance is so palpable and it's so natural. Like she was just, she was so great with them. I would have loved to see her in, in uh, yeah. a few more of their films. Have you seen her film 24 Hours with Miriam Hopkins? That is one that I have not seen yet. No, I, 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 I've, I've re- try and track yeah. that one down because she's absolutely amazing in that she, she, uh, in the opening scene, she's just playing an extremely bored socialite. Um, and there's a brilliant scene of her in a, in a taxi with a misted up window where she's just idly, uh, dragging her finger along the glass and making patterns in it and things. Uh, and she's just, uh, the, the, this image of sophisticated languor. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, and then it eventually it becomes a kind of a, kind of a gangster story. It's a, it's a really nice film. And it's got the music from Horse Feathers from the Speakeasy really? is in it. Oh. Um, being delivered as a song by, by Miriam Hopkins. That's amazing. It's called You're the One That I Crave. You're the One That I Crave. 24 hours. I'll have to check that one out. I just recently started watching all of her work with William Powell, uh, Jewel Robbery and One Way Passage. I'm obsessed with William Powell. We actually named our son after the Thin Man character, Nick Charles. That's our kid's name. Um, Uh, yeah, we just, yeah, we're, we're big, big old movie buffs. Bob, did you have a supporting character you wanted to see? I know this isn't going to go over well with you guys, but (laughs) Edgar Kennedy, I would love to have seen him, uh, be the continuing foil for, Harpo and Chico. Okay, yeah, I can see that one for sure. Yeah, there, there were so many fun characters that kind of popped in and, and and popped out, and you don't get to really see them too too much. Yeah. Well, maybe this would be a good note to end on. Okay. I I know Hannah that you're you're not currently teaching classic film, um, but uh, so I wonder to what extent are the Marx Brothers now with you every day i know you you've been rewatching their films lately mm-hmm. and you just showed your husband animal crackers yep. for the first time yeah well done thank you 
Uh, how often do you think about them or watch them? Um, I mean, I think about them every day. They're literally in my hallway. You know, I, I see them every day when I walk to take a shower. Um, I, yeah, I, I would say that they are, they're in my thoughts all the time because they are not only part of my childhood, they're part of such an important part of my career and of my life and now of my son's life. Um, there's always at least a line or two in my brain rattling throughout the day, looking for a way to come out and a way to be used. I don't always get to use that opportunity, but, uh, you know, it's there. So I, I feel like whenever something, you know, touches you deeply and magically in that way, it always haunts you. Sometimes it's more subconscious, sometimes it's more in, in the front of your mind. But I feel like the brothers are always sort of with you once you watch them and you deeply sort of take them in. So for that, I'm, you know, immensely grateful. And you've given that gift to so many other people, um, including young people who very much needed it. And your story is fantastic. I'm so happy to hear it. Um, and thanks for getting in touch with us and talking to us. Yes. Uh, this has really been one of the more interesting uh, interviews. No insult to our other guests, but this is something else. Well, thank you guys so much for having me on this show. I have, I'm a huge fan, obviously. I've listened to all of your guys' episodes, and I, I've got my dad listening to it now as well. Hi, Dad. Um, he's, uh, you know, he, he 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 was obviously the you know the 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 guy that uh, turned me on to these uh, to the brothers in the first place. So we're we're very very big fans. And thank you guys for hosting the show and keeping their their work and their genius alive. It's it's quite a blessing. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Thank you. So I think we should give you the honor of uh, introducing the uh, final song. What should I say? <laughs> <laughs> Introduce the song to end the show. What song? Any song? Something relevant to the show in any way. Oh, my goodness. I'm on the spot. Now, I can't think of a good song. Does it have to be like a Marx Brothers song? No. No? Um, it could be Devo. We don't care. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> perhaps it would be um, slightly on the nose to end with Jailhouse Rock. Ah, did Harpo do a version of that? <laughs> we, we, we can look on YouTube. Yeah, it might be there. Okay. <laughs> Yeah.
They could have used that number in the, uh, do you mean to say Polly's going to marry Harvey Yates? Oh, God, that was that scene was so painful. That guy was so painful to watch. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He was painful. <laughs> so I'm imagining the scene in Horse Feathers where the policeman gets locked up in the uh, wagon. Does that get, like, big roars and, and applause? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Any time, you know, the... The the cops got to what was coming to them. That was always a that was always a high point. The Marx Brothers Council podcast is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham Spugs, the annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me Groucho are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarksBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marks and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marks Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!